I've often imagined Paul at the end of writing what we call Romans 8, just sitting back in his chair. He looks across the room. He's sitting in there in Corinth. He just thinks for a long, long moment. Then perhaps he considers again what he just wrote down. I have become absolutely convinced that neither death nor life, neither messenger of heaven nor monarch of earth, neither what happens today nor what may happen tomorrow, neither a power from on high nor a power from below, nor anything else in God's whole world has any power to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He stands up from his chair, maybe does a couple laps of the room. Because despite the fact that everything he just wrote is totally true, uh, all those glories so gloriously uh, wonderful and eminent, he just can't shake this gnawing, painful thought that he feels deep down in his belly. It it feels like it burns within him. He, He just cannot shake it. So he sits back down, takes up his reed pen, or has Tertius the scribe take up his reed pen, and begins again with these words. Before Christ and my conscience, I assure you that I am speaking the plain truth when I say that there is something that makes me feel very depressed, like a pain that never leaves me. And friends, isn't it interesting that the same man who composed the words we just spent seven weeks studying could, while composing them, have felt very depressed? I mean, you read chapter 8 and you would never guess that. But now I want you to listen to what it is that haunts him. It is the condition of my brothers and fellow Israelites, and I've actually reached the pitch of wishing myself cut off from Christ if it meant that they could be one for God. Just think what the Israelites have had given to them. The privilege of being adopted as sons of God, the experience of seeing something of the glory of God, the receiving of the agreements made with God, the gift of the law, true ways of worship, God's own promises, all these are theirs. The patriarchs are theirs. And so too, as far as human descent goes, is Christ himself. Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. I almost imagine Paul here pushing back from his writing desk again. Who knows? Maybe even taking another lap of the room. He's just feeling this so deeply. And of course, we can agree. It's beautiful what he feels for his brothers, his fellow Israelites. Like he would take their place if he could, if only they could see. If only they would accept what is rightfully theirs. I mean, it's right there in front of them. That's how Paul feels. But for me, reading verses 3, 4, and 5 over and over this week, it got me noticing the structure of what Paul has written here. In fact, I want you to listen again specifically to verses 4 and 5. Just listen. Just think what the Israelites have had given to them. 
the privilege of being adopted as sons of God, the experience of seeing something of the glory of God, the receiving of the agreements made with God, uh, the gift of the law, true ways of worship, God's own promises, all these are theirs. The patriarchs are theirs, and so too, as far as human descent goes, is Christ himself, Christ who is God over all. Could you hear it? In a sequential, linear time, he has given them a list of their benefits. He has, Paul has taken us on a journey through really the whole Old Testament. All those elements build upon one another. I mean, these people could not get to Jesus without starting out at their chosen sonship. And so here's what I can't stop thinking about this week. If the new covenant is like almost like stepping through to the other side of this heavenly looking glass, well, then shouldn't our experience be sort of mirroring, kind of like going the other direction from this list he just gave us? Let me prove it to you. Listen, because we begin with Jesus. We ascend with him. And we live our lives with the same growing confidence as our patriarchs, the early church. Like them, we learn to live his promises, to worship in spirit and truth, to accept his spirit as the way, to agree to the new agreement, the new covenant that was forged between the father and son. And in the midst of all this, we experience really and realistically the ever available glory of the Lord. And most importantly, through the finished work of Jesus, we step into the mighty privilege of being adopted forever as sons of God. Do you hear that? I mean, do you kind of see it in your mind's eye? How all of that mirrors the Israelites' Old Testament journey? Friends, let's not miss an ounce of it. The old is gone. The new is here. Well, let's continue as Paul continues. Now, this does not mean that God's word to Israel has failed, for you cannot count all Israelites as the true Israel of God, nor can all Abraham's descendants be considered truly children of Abraham. The promise was that in Isaac shall thy descendants be called. Now, what Paul is about to do is really quite an interesting pivot to take the Israelite identity out of just being, quote, sons of Abraham, because remember, there was an Ishmael before there was an Isaac. And actually, he even goes further. He wants us to remember that not only was there an Ishmael in the story, but actually there comes to be an Esau too. Paul wants us to focus not on the flesh, but on the spirit. Not on the natural, but on the supernatural power of the what? the promise. In fact, listen to how he splits our consideration on those two veins. Let's continue to listen. That means that it is not the natural descendants who automatically inherit the promise, but on the contrary, that the children of the promise, i.e. the sons of God, are to be considered truly Abraham's children. For it was a promise when God said, about this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Everybody, remember, thought it quite impossible for Sarah to have a child. So that was the promise that led to Isaac, remember. 
But then again, listen, Paul keeps going. And then again, a word of promise came to Rebecca at the time when she was pregnant with two children by the one man, Isaac, our forefather. It came before the children were born or had done anything good or bad, plainly showing that God's act of choice has nothing to do with achievements, good or bad, but is entirely a matter of his will. The promise was, the elder shall serve the younger. And we get a a later endorsement of this divine choice in the words, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So again, to be an Israelite wasn't just to be a son of Abraham, because we have to remember Ishmael in the narrative. And two, it does not just naturally flow along the natural family line, Paul's evidence being Esau. In other words, the promise of God is a higher thing than the natural order you and I are used to. His perfect will is higher than all human considerations. Can we agree on that? But now, can we also agree that we're starting to wade out now into waters that oftentimes make us totally uncomfortable? I mean, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated? These are not words we generally like to do business with, along with other words like predestination, which is quite clearly where this chapter is taking us in our considerations. Well, let's not be afraid. Let's just continue to read on and let's do business with Paul's logic and with the heart of God as we know it in Jesus. So let's continue. Now, do we conclude that God is monstrously unfair? And before I read a word further, let's be honest. Sometimes we think, yes, we don't always use the word with which Paul answers his own rhetorical question in a second. So I want you to hear him again, and then we'll roll on. So here we go. Now, do we conclude that God is monstrously unfair? Never. God said long ago to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It is obviously not a question of human will or human effort, but of divine mercy. And we're going to come back to this again in a moment, but I want to insert right here, right now, the means of divine mercy to mankind are already available to everyone by the work of Jesus at the cross. So the playing field is perfectly level, at least as far as we consider it from the human side. And again, I'm going to circle back to explain what I mean in just a moment. The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose did I raise thee up, that I might show in thee my power, and that my name might be published abroad in all the earth. It seems plain, then, that God chooses on whom he will have mercy and on whom he will harden in their sin. But here's the important point, and again, we'll come back to this. Only God knows his own choices. We don't get to know fully how this all works. Especially when it comes to others' destiny, we ourselves don't know. And again, we'll come back to that. Let's keep reading. Of course, I can almost hear your retort. 
If this is so and God's will is irresistible, why does God blame men for what they do? But the question really is this. Who are you, a man, to make any such reply to God? When a craftsman makes anything, he doesn't expect it to turn around and say, why did you make me like this? The potter, for instance, is always assumed to have complete control over the clay, making with one part of the lump a lovely vase, and with another a pipe for sewage. Can we not assume that God has the same control over human clay? May it not be that God, though he must sooner or later expose his wrath against sin and show his controlling hand, has yet most patiently endured the presence in his world of things that cry out to be destroyed? Now, friends, I'm going to say something right here that might make you just momentarily uncomfortable, but I promise, I promise you, I am working with Paul here. But I actually think that that argument about the potter and the clay is just a little disingenuous. Because Paul knows perfectly well well, that you and I have been made in the image of God. His original readers in Rome had been made in the image of God. That we are not unreasoning brutes who aren't going to wonder about the fairness of God's plan. So yes, while I want to firmly and fully contemplate all that Paul's saying, I've always found the way he says that just to be a a bit intellectually and spiritually unsatisfying. Because of course, yes, God is in complete control. But isn't it natural that we, the ambassadors of his mercy, would like to ask some questions about the mechanics of his mercy? So I'm going to continue, but I just wanted you to hear me say that because I think we all feel that to a degree and I wrestle with it too. So let me keep reading on. Can we not see in this his purpose in demonstrating the boundless resources of his glory upon those whom he considers fit to receive his mercy and whom he long ago planned to raise to glorious life? And by these chosen people, I mean you and me, whom he has called out from both Jews and Gentiles. He says in Hosea, I will call that my people, which was not my people, and her beloved, which was not my beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there shall they be called sons of the living God. And friends, that's where I want to put my stake in the ground right now. I mean, that is the crux of the whole thing. Because Whether you are Arminian in your view, like a total free willer, or you're a devout disciple of Calvinistic predestination, really almost a determinist, I want to take you on a journey of what we know, and maybe more importantly, what we don't know, and then I want to land just like Paul just landed on our sonship. So you ready to take that journey with me? Okay, here we go. I'm going to narrate your and my human journey. Here we go. You and I were born into the disconnection of sin. Now, we were at times aware of this and at other times totally oblivious. You and I lived unto ourselves with generally only the vaguest views of God. Or I'll say it this way. We did not, before we knew him, know him. You and I experienced our experiences of life. 
And quite frankly, we really didn't know how life works. But at some point, for all of us, you and me, whether it was in a hundred small ways or one monumental way, we met God. But we didn't control the circumstances. We didn't necessarily see it coming. We still don't fully understand. We don't grasp the way he did it. And since then, you and I have been growing in our awareness of, our experience of, the meaning of our adoption into his family. But I have a caveat for you. Our knowledge is really what he chooses to reveal to us. I mean, we generally only know as much of him as he's shown us, but we know that we are now sons and daughters of God. So let me just point out for the journey you and I have been on precisely where we've been with understanding and knowing what's been going on. We were mostly oblivious not knowing God, not understanding life until in a way that we still don't understand that we didn't control. He allowed each of us still totally limited in our understanding to become his children. I mean, that right there is how much you and I understand of ourselves about free will versus predestination. I mean, are you totally confident about forming your own systematic theology in either direction? And actually, I'm going to make it harder on you right now. Because do you and I fully know the spiritual journey of anyone we know, even the people we're closest with? Can you and I describe in exacting detail just how one other person understands God in their own life? Do you and I know every single infinitesimal portion of the life of any other individual? Do you and I know precisely where that one other person is along their spiritual journey? And here's the kicker. Do you and I already know whether their eternal destiny is bound for heavenly glory or the other option? Oh, so you and I know nothing. But were you listening before? I mean, did you happen to hear the one thing that Paul says we do know? That through the life and death and resurrection and indwelling of Jesus, we are sons and daughters of God. We are his children. We have the same father, the same inheritance as Jesus himself. I will call that my people, which was not my people, and her beloved, which was not my beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there shall they be called sons of the living God. Friends, that is us. Let me continue reading. And Isaiah, speaking about Israel, proclaims, If the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that shall be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth, finishing it and cutting it short. And previously, Isaiah said, Except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had become as Sodom and had been made like unto Gomorrah. You see, friends, it's, it's not our church attendance, our understanding of theological positions, how well we can argue free will versus predestination that saves us. We are only saved as sons and daughters of God by the Son of God who loves us and is 
ever drawing us into the family. So the charge for us, really what I want you to be hearing in this chapter is, well, let's now go draw others into this family. Let's make that our life's work. Let's finish out the chapter. Now, how far have we got? That the Gentiles who never had the law's standard of righteousness to guide them have attained righteousness, righteousness by faith. But Israel, following the law of righteousness, uh, failed to reach the goal of righteousness. And why? Because their minds were fixed on what they achieved instead of on what they believed. They tripped over that very stone the scripture mentions. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he that believeth on him shall not be put to shame. You know, I'm going to actually save the bulk of that for next week because that's also the theme of chapter 10. But before we're done, I want you to hear me say this. If a first century, literally pharisaical Jew can end this section by rejoicing over how big the grace of God is, that I want to associate with 21st century followers of Jesus who likewise look to extend the realm, to see just how far the kingdom of God can go in our lifetime, to rejoice in the righteousness by faith that moves to capture all. Amen? I would have to answer myself, amen. Thanks for listening.